did it again. <laughs> Buddy, I've been hanging out in bars for 20 years. I've never seen a stuff like that. There's nothing to it, really. See that? Guy's the eighth wonder of the world. He says there's nothing to it. So where are you from again? Danger. It's in Jersey, right? Right. Transfer complete. Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith, and joining me on the Las Vegas Bridge... This is Tyler Orton, not playing with a full deck. <laughs> and we're here this week to look at the DS9 Season 7 episode, Bada Bing Bada Bang, and really ponder the journey of Vic Fontaine. Yeah, I think for a little bit, you and I were kind of figuring out what would be a fun ensemble episode to do as one of our classic episode reviews. Now that we're back into doing that again. And I think it was as soon as one of us mentioned this episode, we're like, yeah. How come we haven't done that before? And I think as, as the episode unfolded, as uh, we were watching, it, it kind of maybe struck me that this is the culmination of Vic Fontaine's journey on Deep Space Nine. Of course, we see him during the final arc of the series. This is the last episode to air before we got that the so-called final chapter arc kicking off here. And it really is telling us where <laughs> where this guy ultimately ends up with an entire crew of uh, Starfleet and Bajoran militia officers um, care for his well-being. This is a hologram. And, you know, it, but it makes sense when you think about the journey. Uh, he started with his way. You got Hira and Odo joining in, uh, in their relationship with him there. We have over. Oh, wow. <laughs> Well, you know, sorry. Uh, <laughs> we understand uh, what you mean. <laughs> what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, Cam. That's all. I that's can right. Say. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, I, I and uh, over the paper moon with Nog, uh, of course, becoming very attached to Vic because of how he helped him deal with PTSD. And I think it really culminates with this, where you really solidify. You know, obviously, uh, you know, Julian's always been very fond of this, but you, you understand why the crew is behind. Um, I think it is uh, uh, some more of the acknowledgements here and that Quark has always seen Vic as more of a, uh, a rival, somebody who's sucking time away from his own bar. And you have somebody like Worf who just says, like, uh, he's not my friend. I mean, I find his music entertaining, but this guy's <laughs> just a hologram to me. And I think it's very much Worf's personality uh, shining through right in that moment. But I, I overall, like, I, I, I think it's intriguing. Cam, when I started this journey, uh, Vic Fontaine back in I think 1997 or whatever the year was when his way aired I think it was 97 and they're pitching the idea of a 1960s Vegas lounge singer appearing you were like yes yes they finally got my letters that was all Tyler <laughs> that's all I ever wanted I, I mean I thought this would be like a one-off episode I was happy to see Kira and Odo together I had no no perception that they would be bringing Vic Fontaine back as much as he did. I would have thought it was silly, but Jimmy Darren really pulls his character off. He, he's very charming. Um, I I can understand why some fans would be thinking this is a little distracting and this is very much uh, an Iris Stephen Bear vanity project, the uh, the showrunner, the, <laughs> the man who ushered Vic Fontaine in. But 
I was so delighted to go on this journey with Vic. And he's just such a wonderful character. And of course, Cam, you know uh, how much uh, Jimmy Darren is, is fond of me uh, in all the times that I've encountered him in Las Vegas. Of course. Yes, we've had a couple memorable uh, encounters with Jimmy Darren. Um, one of them was very wonderful. <laughs> so I'll yeah, leave it at yeah. that. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, but, I'll share this story, uh, sure. listeners. Um, sure. I think it was after the Rat Pack finished up. For those that have not been to the Star Trek Las Vegas convention before the Rat Pack, it's the uh, final night of the convention. You have a lot of familiar actors uh, performing at lounge tunes like Max Grodencheck, Casey Biggs, everybody else. Jimmy Darren even made an appearance on stage that evening. Kim, you encountered him after the show wrapped up. I think you went yeah. up and uh, you had like a nice little encounter. And then uh, I'm coming out of the bathroom and you're like, you're like, Tyler, you better go say hi. He's right there. I'm like, well, okay. Um, so I walk up. Hello, Mr. Darren. Hold out my hand. He, he, he he's in the, one of those situations where I guess he has to touch my, my um, damp hand after I just washed my hands in the bathroom. <laughs> this and was I, also pre COVID. I just want to emphasize yes, that to yes. listeners. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, my hands were damp because I washed them as well. Um, and so like, he just, he stared right through me, did not make any sort of eye contact. And I was, uh, to me, it was just deflating. I was like, why did I do that? Why did I ruin that? But then I think maybe the next year, or maybe two years later, Cam, uh, we got our photo taken with him. And to him, we were the youth of today. Like yeah. um, you, I think you're in your late 30s. I was in my like uh, early to mid 30s. And this guy saw us as, as Gen Z. <laughs> You know, like uh, he was, he was just eager. He's like, "Fellas, come to my table. Uh, we'll uh, we'll get some more uh, music hookups." And it was just like, "Wow!" So that that was a far better encounter when we got our picture taken with him there. So I think that's why you and I were very excited to return to uh, Bada Bing, Bada Bang, and talk about how this lands in the Vic pantheon as well as maybe the the, the wider pantheon of like maybe caper episodes in Star Trek. Mm -hmm. How successful is is and and, and holodeck. Yeah, well, even how successful Deep Space Nine is in terms of ensemble episodes versus a lot of those other series where it very is tough to find ensemble episodes compared to other shows. Yeah, which is really strange because like Star Trek really starting with TNG onwards was an ensemble show more or less, but it, it does seem like TNG, they just really, you know, locked down that their formula was for the most part, pick a character and build the episode around each of them. So you could bounce po uh, personalities kind of every week. Whereas DS9 really saw the ensemble as a strength they could play with. And I, I had some questions for you just about Vic Fontaine, because I was, you know, reading the Memory Alpha slash DS9 companion stuff on this episode. And they talked about how um, writing Cisco's you know, uh, views of Vic and probably Worf to a degree as well was a little bit of um, uh, sort of acknowledging fan response to the character, which was pretty icy for many at the time. I was just curious back in the day when you were watching DS9, if you remembered anything from the boards or anything about the response to Vic Fontaine. Well, are, are you talking about kind of the, the racial stuff that uh, Cisco was bringing up or just the fact no. that uh, maybe he could be more of a polarizing uh, uh entry into any given episode yeah just the character himself like a lot of people found him very grating or were not big fans of just vic fontaine the entity um on ds9 initially yeah i think a lot of people just thought the conceit was pretty stupid and that hmm. it was taken away from more of the sci-fi setting those were my recollections from back in the day i don't know like cam if you talk to 
a Deep Space Nine fan now. Don't you, doesn't everybody just say that uh, Vic Fontaine, that stuff is just kind of wonderful addition to the series? It just gives it that much more character and makes it stick out versus a lot of the other uh, shows in Star Trek? Yeah, I think that's very much the case. And I think one of the smartest things they did with Vic Fontaine was, um, you know, when you go to TNG, like, there's really, remind me if I'm wrong, but there's really only one memorable holodeck character, which is Moriarty. Um who is a great antagonist on the show and apparently will be coming back in Picard season three. But like when you get to DS9, one of the genius things they did with Vic Fontaine was all three of the stories that you mentioned off the top of this episode are all very much driven by emotional journeys for the characters, whether it's the um, Kira Odo love story in his way, Nog's like PTSD and getting over losing a leg in Paper Moon. And then this one, it's like, the emotions about Vic, about what he's going through and how the other characters rally around him to help him out during a tough spell. It doesn't feel like some of the other shows, if they had a character that was a holodeck character, it was grounded more in like a high concept, like what this character could get them versus DS9 really want to understand Vic and also his impact on other people. Well, what would be the most memorable in Voyager? Would it be some of the uh, Captain Proton stuff? Would it be Michael Sullivan from Fairhaven? Well, like I, because I think you're right. You've got Moriarty, and then maybe you've got the Wind Dancer uh-huh. in the Next Generation. Yeah. Uh, oh, uh, Trevis and Flotter. Yeah, I guess that's in Voyager. That that would be the most memorable uh, holodeck characters. And I cannot imagine you're you're forgetting the, one. The Voyager you are forgetting a real prominent one. Okay, but I cannot imagine the Trevis and Flotter caper story in which the crew all mm. bands together to uh, care for those two. But uh, what is a big one that you keep reminding me that I forgot about? Leonardo da Vinci. Oh, you've got that. I am so <laughs> so broken hearted that I I forgot about Leonardo <laughs> da, uh, da Vinci. Um, yeah. Um, uh, how come there aren't more, uh, people dressing up as Leonardo da Vinci, uh, for, uh, the Star Trek Las Vegas, uh, cosplay camp? I think we've got to get John Reese davies to the convention and then maybe it'll happen. But, you know, when you list off those, um, Voyager ones, none of them are really driven in the same way by, like, emotional character journeys. Because I would say, like, the stuff in Captain Proton is probably the stuff fans like the most, um, but even if you say like, um, you know, Da Vinci, who has a whole episode with Janeway, it's more of like a silly, lighthearted, I don't know, escapade than an actual character journey for Janeway. But I still think it's hilarious that, um, well, Vic Fontaine has grown in fan esteem over the last mm. uh, two decades or so. Uh, the same cannot be said for Da Vinci. <laughs> no, and I don't think the uh, reappraisals are going to come anytime soon, really. No, no, it, 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 just the reappraisals for Trevis and Flotter. <laughs> well, you know what? I will always support Trevis and Flotter because they are so strange, so deeply strange. I would wear a t-shirt of them. And the Wind Dancer from uh, Next Generation. Uh, is it Quality of Life? Is that the uh, the Loxana Troy episode? No, Quality of Life is the one with the, um... oh, God. Oh, that's the, the um... Exobots? Yeah, the Exocoms or whatever they were called. Exocoms. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, no, it's uh, cost of living. Cost of living. Yes. Uh, that's your <laughs> after Vic Fontaine. That's your number one favorite uh, holodeck character. The 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 wind dancer. Well, if you were to poll fans, uh, who the second most popular? And I think you have to remove Moriarty here. So let's take Moriarty off the table and say, after Vic Fontaine, who's the most beloved holodeck character, other than the Doctor? Uh, Michael McKean, uh, who played the clown on uh, that ep- the episode uh, The Thaw on uh, 
<laughs> uh, Voyager, you know. Um, other than Doctor, who is the most beloved, like, holodeck character in all of Star Trek? Yeah. I, I'd easily say Vic Fontaine. I don't think there's any sort of debate there. But after Vic Fontaine. Oh, and then I also have to take away Moriarty, too? Yeah. Okay, so you're asking me to take away the top three. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I bet, I bet I could name the next one, and then you'll say, you have to take that one away too, Tyler. Uh. <laughs> well, those are like the three really obvious, prominent ones that we already know have massive fan support. I, I'm looking more towards like the ones that aren't as vocally recognized. Yeah, I, okay. Um, I guess it's Flutter? Is that it, Cam? Like, I'm trying to think. Is there somebody big that we're missing? Like, because, you know, like Dixon Hill, you know, Sherlock, yeah. you know, th those are the characters playing those particular literary figures. It, 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 they're not creations of their own, you know, and we, we didn't, you know, I, I am racking my brain because I think that's a very good question worth having here. Yeah, because like Queen Arachnia, it's like, well, if it wasn't played by Kate Mulgrew, would people love it to the degree they do? Probably not. Um, I'm trying to think of like original characters. Is it Chaotica? Maybe. Yeah, it might be Chaotica. I think it might be Flotter. Like, and I, I think it's mostly because there's not much competition. Yeah. Well, it's like, I think the visual design. Flotter is kind of disturbing. It is. Yeah. But I think the visual design goes a long way, at least in terms of making uh, the character memorable. Yeah. Is there like just a one-off episode, like holodeck character, you know? Because all the other ones, the, the first three you mentioned, were in at least two episodes. Yeah. I'm trying to, like, really rack my brain about who it might be. Grendel? <laughs> um, minuet? <laughs> oh, you know what? Minuet might be next in line. Joe Piscopo? Uh, a little further down. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Under Trevis somewhere. Okay. Okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm sure we'll get angry letters uh, telling us we forgot something like super, super obvious, which of course is uh, Kira's body, Quark's head, as featured in Meridian. Oh, of course, of course, yes. Uh, uh, I mean, I'm sure uh, there's characters in um, Our Man Bashir, but then I don't know. That's again all the cast playing yeah. characters. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, Kim, uh, look, I I think we can like kind of step into the uh, the episode itself, and then a broader. Topics like this will arise, no doubt. But I'm um, curious, just if uh, th there's any one line that kind of stood out to me um, to, to really establish the stakes. And that is something that I always need to be invested in when it comes to Star Trek episode. Or, or what are the stakes and why do I care? And it was Julian and Miles telling Vic, why don't you just take a vacation for now? Stay out of town. And he's like, did you guys take a vacation when the Dominion took over Deep Space Nine? And it kind of struck those two fellas. Like, oh, this is important. We need to address this. And even you have that scene in Ops where we have Nog and Kira and Miles all talking about how much they want to help Vic. Like, it doesn't matter to me that, you know, nobody's going to die in this episode, but I am invest invested and whether or not this holodeck character is going to be able to continue on in his existence, and whether or not this crew is going to be able to keep going with this setting that they go to for relief to de-stress during this very traumatic Dominion War that's going on here. So to me, like very early on, they did a good job at establishing what are low stakes. I like these low stakes Star Trek stories where 
it doesn't necessarily revolve around the end of the universe that we get in so much of, especially the new stuff that's coming on TV, at least in live action right now. Yeah, and I really like how, um, you know, they mentioned that Vic's memory could be wiped, you know, if they try to reset the program. And it's like, okay, we cannot do that because Vic has become such an important part of their life. And you have to imagine, as you were saying, like, you know, the Dominion War and all of that sort of, you know, tumult they're going through it, how important Vic would be in helping them navigate this. Like, that's why I was saying, like, the, you know, the character is so driven by emotion with the characters that... I think it works on the audience as well. Like, I, I understand people were a little polarized on the character back in the day, but I think that's why on these revisits, they really fall in love with him. And it makes this episode have, like, higher stakes than a lot of other things. You know, you can give me an episode of Discovery where, I don't know, uh, <laughs> spore data could crumple the known universe. And I go, well, I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. But, like, I watched this episode, and I care because I understand what Vic is going through. And Jimmy Darren is legit great at playing this character. Like, he brings a lot to the table. Yeah, it's like, oh, no, the Red Angel is appearing, and we don't know the significance. What does that mean for the future of, you know, Stamets? It's like, eh. It's like, why are we invested so much in that sort of storyline versus something like this, where we can understand how it will have an immediate emotional impact on the characters involved? And we also see how other characters just treat Vic. Right off the top of the episode, you have Bashir and O'Brien sitting there with him trying to, you know, encourage him to come join them for the Alamo recreation. Like, they don't view him at a certain point as a hologram. They view him as just a being that they really enjoy spending time with. And it's just really smart storytelling and it just helps lay the groundwork for an episode that could be so silly like there's a moment where cisco comes onto the you know into the control room and they're all just like trying to figure out what to do about vic and cisco's like can we do some actual work here sort of acknowledging that it's kind of silly but at the same time it's important to all the characters and i really like that and the show does a good job of communicating why it's important to them yeah, I, I going back to the Alamo deal, I am just going to point out one little flaw here. If they can easily transfer uh, one holodeck program into another holodeck program, uh, why not just create like an uh, entirely new Vegas program and just transfer Vic over to that thing? I don't answer these questions. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Yeah, but um, but okay. So you bring up the the Cisco stuff, and you can tell that there is some tension underneath him when uh, he's departing ops. He's asking people, you know, when are you going to get back to work? There's that dinner that he has with Cassidy, and he's not really interested in uh, people's efforts to help uh, Vic. Hmm. And then finally, he and Cassidy have that third scene in which they're addressing the racial stuff that's going on in terms of, you know, 1962 Las Vegas, uh, you know, black people, they could go there to perform. They could go there to uh, serve food and drinks. Uh, they cannot go into those casinos as customers. And I'll say it, it, it's something worth bringing up, but I think it was done in a bit of a heavy-handed way. Like, And I did not remember it being so heavy-handed until I rewatched that scene. Um, <laughs> just now. And I think what it does is it speaks to the complete lack of diversity within the Deep Space Nine writers room. It was white dudes. There, there are no women, no people of color in there. And it was, uh, it, it shows in how, even in an episode like Far Beyond the Stars, you wonder what else they could have done with an episode like that, how much farther 
they could have taken it if you had, you know, like a writer's room that looked like what America looks like. And I, I think that was one of the flaws of this episode and just how heavy handed that scene came off, even though they're, they're addressing something quite important. But I don't know that did it did it stick out to you like a sore thumb or, or, or what was your take on that scene between uh, Ben and Cassidy before Ben decided to join in on the caper? Well, I think what does work for me about it is that both characters have entirely understandable points of view and like neither one of them is wrong at all. And I think that is interesting into itself. And actually like this scene would be written very differently now, I think in 2022, because as you said, there would be people of color writing a scene like that. Um, But I, I am kind of impressed that for the late nineties, they were still making both characters' points of view, I think, very clear to the audience and also allowing you to understand like why each person feels, you know, in the different ways they do. Where I think it falls maybe a little awkward is just how quickly Cisco pivots. Um, and it doesn't really ever acknowledge that again. It's like they introduce it and then they move on. And so it's like, I'm sure, I, I do feel like in 19, in the late 90s, this would have been kind of outside the norm to introduce a scene like this, especially in kind of a lighthearted caper episode like this. But it also feels like they didn't want to revel in it very long either. Yeah, I agree with you. It was a very quick turn, and it stuck out to me how you have that scene with Ben and Cassidy, and then the very next scene, after Cassidy's made her points and Ben has made his points, the very next scene, uh, Ben turns up as the high roller, the high-stakes yeah. roller there. And... I, I and I kept thinking in my head, like, well, how would they have shown his decision, like what's going on in his head? I, I think it was, would have been a very difficult thing to kind of showcase yet another scene where does it feel, yeah, you, know, you know, discovering Picard is so guilty of this, but where you keep restacking things again and again and again and just driving it home, where at a certain point you're going to have to kind of make that leap with the characters. And I think. In my head, at least I can make that leap. And like, you know, it stuck with Cass or it stuck with Ben, what Cassidy was saying. And okay, he can make that leap, even if we're not following him on, you know, his own sort of uh, <laughs> uh, narration that's going on in his own head. But I agree with you. It, it, I didn't quite understand his motivation for participating in this. Was it just he kind of could see Cassidy's point of view and wanted to be there as moral support for his senior crew. I, I guess that's the best way I can justify it in my head. I mean, it doesn't seem insane to me that he would take some genuine time to mull over what Cassidy said and perhaps make the decision based on that. I would have liked even maybe just a little acknowledgement between the two of them at the end of the episode, something like that, just to kind of tie off that sort of moment in their relationship because I think that would have helped I mean they clearly wanted to go out on a high with Avery Brooks singing on the stage with you know Jimmy Darren um, but I would have liked maybe a little bit of acknowledgement of something between him and Cassidy and there's one other thing that stuck out to me that Cassidy said you know and she's like um, like we know what our history is about here like it, just because we're participating doesn't mean that we're not acknowledging kind of our history. And I, I think maybe what, like, I, I just don't know if I'm confabulating or projecting things, but I think maybe at the time there are people like that, that seemed kind of stuck out to them because by the time you're in the 24th century, you're not really thinking in, in terms of 
you know, skin color anymore. But you think about what's gone on in the last two years, you know, all across the world in, in terms of recognizing um, just all this racial inequity. It's like th there's a certain period in which uh, people would be in like, uh, you know, developed uh, or, uh, countries, you know, like Canada, the United States and be like, yeah, yeah, we're over racing. You know, maybe there's some uh, outliers, you know, some bad apples that are still racist, but uh, these countries, uh, they're not racist at all. And, and, and I, I think there's more of a realization than there's like institutional bias. There, there's st things that we still continue to need to address. And I, I would still like to believe that uh, we can uh, go beyond that by the time we're in the 24th century. But that doesn't mean, as Cassidy was making the point, that doesn't mean that we ever forget about it. You know, and I, I just wonder if that's what some folks... Maybe at the time, if I recall, maybe that's um, irked them just a little bit and that you would have a scene like that, that it almost takes you away from the Star Trek universe and what's kind of established there just for maybe that, that three-minute scene. Yeah, that's true. But I mean, one of, the, one of the important elements of Star Trek is that it's using science fiction in the future to comment on what... You know, we're going through at this very moment. It's ultimately universal because you can apply some of these stories to many points. But like, to me, that was always one of the genius things about DS9 was that they could have, even in a lighthearted episode like this, genuine social commentary that for those that were listening to it could get something out of. And, you know, I mean, this was like an Iris Stephen Bear dream project to do this episode because the, <laughs> he clearly loves his 60s Las Vegas. The fact that like he said, like, you know, I want to acknowledge these things in the episode. He didn't, it, that seems kind of bold for that period where if, you know, a lot of showrunners are making their fantasy caper, lighthearted, silly episode, they would not do this. So it's kind of what makes DS9 special. And I think like, especially coming after Far Beyond the Stars, you kind of have to acknowledge these sorts of um, historical truths when you do stories like this. Like that episode, I think really kind of cemented what was important about DS9 and it would be kind of irresponsible to ignore it. Yeah. The, the one thing I'll, I'll point out, and I, I don't disagree with anything you say, but when you use science fiction as, as a way to showcase what's going on uh, in, in contemporary times, you're using it kind of um, through like analogies, not true one-to-one -one analogs. And this was very much a one-to-one -one analog going on here and so that that's the only thing that i'll point i look i have no problem with star trek tackling like racism head-on even as like a direct analog versus you know more of a, uh, a an analogy or metaphor that's going on here which we would see in other many other episodes when we we're talking about you know different classes uh different you know um uh, casts you know like uh, as in c a s t e you know that sort of stuff so and i i do feel when you are tackling things that are as important as racism, that maybe it's best not to always hide it behind an allegory because yeah, there's certain audience members who kind of need it presented as is. And uh, I think, you know, it can be uncomfortable to see, but sometimes it's important that we watch things that are uncomfortable as well. Yeah. Um, speaking of uncomfortable, uh, man, uh, <laughs> Odo doing that hand trick, stretching his arm. Uh, so uh, that man, that, that would uh, hurt my, uh, <laughs> my extremities there, but I like how Odo charmed his way into the ranks of the mob. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, like that is a uh, chief constable if I ever saw one, you know? 
I love how into this entire situation Odo is, where, like, not only is he doing tricks to impress the mob, he is, like, going, like, Jim Carrey in the mask over the, like, burlesque dancers on the stage. It's like, Odo, normally kind of a curmudgeon, but boy, apparently you drop him in 1960s Vegas and he just comes to life. Auga. Um, one thing that I thought was curious with Odo, though, is how, you know, uh, I think it was uh, Cheech asks him where he's from, and Odo identifies as being from Bajor. I thought that was interesting. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. he could have said anything. You know, he's in a holodeck program. He could have said the Gamma Quadrants or, you know, but it is interesting that he said Bajor in that moment. And uh, look, maybe that was just cover. That was just a split second decision. I mean, obviously, um, Dr. Oh, is it uh, Mora? Uh, was the yeah. one the Bajoran scientist that um, was his father figure, you know? So I can understand, you know, like his formative years were on Bajor for sure. But ultimately, the journey of Odo is him returning home to the Gamma Quadrant, and that's one of the final scenes that we see in Deep Space Nine. As well, he puts on a tuxedo one last time as he waves goodbye to Kira. So I don't know it was just one of those moments that kind of jumped out to me. Yeah, and I like that for the character because that was Odo's journey, was finding a place to belong over the course of the series. And right now, we're getting to the the big, you know, climax of the Dominion War. So Odo doesn't really have a home because I don't know that he is necessarily um, thinking of the Changeling home planet as his home at this point either. So it kind of makes sense that, especially now that he has this relationship with Kira, he would feel like Bajor is more his home. Yeah. Uh, I also appreciate the fact that Nog's investment in what's going on, it doesn't come out of nowhere. Like, it, it seems very organic as well. And we have Nog essentially saying, like, look, if uh, anybody does anything to harm Vic, you know, they're going to have to answer to me. And I, to me, it's just one of those nice callbacks and just kind of acknowledging how important this character is to somebody like Nog. And I, I don't think anyone is more invested in, you know, Vic's continued existence and prosperity than Nog would, despite how fond Julian is of this particular lounge program. And it's a very nice way to pay off the Paper Moon story without having a very special episode acknowledging Paper Moon for an hour. Um, it just shows you like what Nog you know, feels he owes Vic after that. And I made a note that this episode, one of the smartest things it does, and Nog is part of this, is when they are figuring out the heist, which character's to just push aside, like Worf does nothing in this episode, but like the whole concept of Nog being a safe cracker with his ears, I was like, that is genius. Like they really clearly thought through how this heist would work and which characters were important to plug into this because there's others like, you know, Rom isn't in this episode or Lita, like there's other characters that could have plugged into this, but they were very smart about picking which ones worked for an actual heist, um, you know, story. I'll just say that uh, in the like original like uh version of the heist you know the one that uh they kind of walked through before the real heist that went on uh mm-hmm. julian didn't seem very very needed in that like i i think esri could have uh dipped the ipecac into the uh <laughs> into the drink you know it, what you realize though when you actually watch it unfold is that julian actually played a big part when the heist went wrong so it's just one of those situations in, in which the uh the characters got a glimpse of the scripts uh before the audiences did I mean, Julian was there. Um, I think he's, number one, one of the most enthusiastic holodeck people around. So he's going to worm his way into that no matter what. Um, I guess the Epicac, maybe he's like, well, I'm a medical professional. I clearly have to be the one handling this. Um, Yeah, on a hologram. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. Have you ever had Epicac? Never. You? Yeah, I had to when I was very young. Um, we went up to my cabin and we had rat poison, I guess, sitting out for during the cold months. And my sister told me it was sunflower seeds. Okay. And? And so I ate it. Nice, nice. <laughs> Needless to say, my parents were rushing me to the hospital and they had to give me Epicac to uh, get all of the rat poison. I didn't eat that much, but I had to get what was there out of my system. I was okay otherwise. What did, what did it taste like? <sighs> it's been a long time. I was about four or five, oh, but okay. um, it was so wait, wait, wait a minute, sweet. wait a minute, wait a minute. Your two-year-old yeah. sister convinced you... To eat rat poison? She was probably about three, yeah. Okay, okay, well then. <laughs> yep, uh, it, it was probably like, kind of like, almost like a cough syrupy type thing. Um, yeah, not pleasant. Oh. Don't well, want to do it again. <laughs> yeah. Cam, the fact that you ate rat poison as a, a toddler explains quite a bit about you now. It, it's all coming together. <laughs> yeah, um, but have you ever seen the original Ocean's Eleven? I have, and I would say it's not great. <laughs> I would say nope. that the uh, the Steven Soderbergh uh, movies with uh, Clooney, Pitt, and Damon, they're uh, a lot of fun. I, I It inspired me to go watch the original uh, way back when, and it was a snooze fest. And it's just, and not like, oh, Tyler, I bet you just can't deal with, you know, editing uh, from the 1960s. I'm like, no, I can't. I can, but I, I, and I can also determine what's a good movie from the 60s and what's not. Ocean's Eleven, the original one, is not a very good movie. No, it's really not. Um, it just, it, it really does feel like just the Rat Pack just hanging out for two plus hours. What I think is great about that movie is the ending, but all of the high stuff is uh, not not the most compelling, which is why it's so interesting to me that like um, Iris Stephen Bear was just so obsessed with uh, Ocean's Eleven when he was making this, because if you put out this episode shortly after um, you know, the uh, 2001 film. I'm like, oh, this makes sense. Like if Enterprise had done it or something like that. But it is just so interesting to me that Iris Stephen Bear was just so into that Rat Pack Ocean's Eleven movie in the late 90s. Do you think Steven Soderbergh caught uh, Bada Bing Bada Bang and that's what inspired him to pursue the uh, Ocean's Eleven remake? I would love to think so. M maybe he was like, maybe he saw that episode one night late on TV or something and was like, Oh, it's back in the uh, back in the zeitgeist. I got to get those rights quick. Have you ever looked at uh, like I think once a year Steven Soderbergh releases his like media diary in which he uh, documents all the movies, all the TV shows, all the books that he's read any given year. This guy watches a lot of movies and a lot of TV shows, so it would not surprise me that maybe he caught Deep Space Nine back in the day. I, I of course don't necessarily believe that was the direct inspiration for doing an Ocean's Eleven movie, but I don't know. I wouldn't put it past uh, uh, Steven Soderbergh just to, I don't know, feel uh, a little inspired uh, after watching an episode of Deep Space Nine like this. I would love to think that. That would be an amazing world to live in. Um, one thing I think is really impressive about this episode and ultimately about all of the DS9 in particular holodeck episodes is that when, whatever like genre they're dealing with, they really understand the rules of it and they don't cheat on it. Like this episode has like the classic heist. Let's explain the heist. And then we get to watch as the heist goes wrong and how they generate tension from that. They do a lot in like 43 minutes of screen time in this. And the fact that there's this much tension in the actual heist really speaks to just how well written this is and how well directed this episode is. I would say that it is a fairly standard caper episode. 
Like, they're not doing anything, like, out of the ordinary, but it's just done quite effectively. And I, like, that's all I really need. And, and I, for me, like, I don't think I'd seen that many capers, like, uh, when I was, I don't know, like, 11 or 12, and I was seeing this episode for the first time. So this one was kind of almost my introduction to these types of capers. You know, like, I had seen this episode before I ever saw um, the uh, Ocean's Eleven remake, for example. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I just think like this one, and it's something that Irisine Bear has talked about where, like he said, this episode was so difficult. And he's also compared it to his way. The ones that, to a lot of people, they look at them and go, oh, that's just like a, you know, fun hour of television. Um, and they'll often say point to far, something like far beyond the stars and be like, well, that's clearly the difficult one. And Iris Stephen Bear says like this episode and his way ones like that were the most difficult, like the most blood, sweat and tears went into trying to make these fun and energetic and light in a show that, I mean, Star Trek, as we both know, is not really known for its like brilliant, lighthearted comedy episodes. Um, aside from, uh, cost of living. <laughs> but yeah yeah like when you go to the tng holodeck episodes i mean i really like ship in a bottle with moriarty but like beyond that i don't feel like they found sort of the the tension and just kind of the storytelling momentum with the holodeck stories that ds9 did what's the most whimsical episode of the next generation i've got one in mind i think we talked about it last week but i'm wondering if it uh if it's the same one that you have in mind not necessarily a holodeck episode but just the most whimsical tng episode overall okay are we talking quality or just in terms of just the term whimsy just just yeah okay the whimsy. i i would say probably cupid yeah that's what i was figuring i think maybe captain's holiday would be uh, second on the list after that but beyond that I don't know, Cam. I, I, I'm scratching my head trying to think like what would come third on that list. Uh, like, it just whimsy was not necessarily in the TNG vocabulary at all times. I guess elementary dear data probably yeah. counts in that regard. Yeah. Frame of mind after that, too. <laughs> A real laugh riot frame of mind is. Yeah. Um, schisms. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah um, okay. It's not something that TNG, I feel like, did as well. Whereas when I look at Our Man Bashir or Bada Bing, Bada Bang, like, they really just managed to make episodes that had stakes that were involving and also really do good genre hopping where they could tackle, you know, like in the case of um, Our Man Bashir, kind of um, Our Man Flint, James Bond stuff. And they genuinely seemed to understand what they were kind of parodying or at least paying homage to. And that's the same case here, where it's very clear that they really understood heist um, filmmaking. Uh, yeah, just like Star Trek uh, Picard Season 2 in the their caper episode, <laughs> uh, Two of One, right? Um, Cam, how do yeah. you think uh, Two of One compares as a uh, caper episode uh, compared with uh, 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 Bada Bing Bada Bang? The sad part is I have almost no memory whatsoever of the actual heist element. Remember there were like quarantine bracelets that people had to wear because Rene Picard was going to space soon. <laughs> you know, and it's just like yeah. they had to like make sure they had like proper bracelets to get into this party. I, I remember Girardi uh, started singing uh, in one of the most awkward moments, like skin crawling moments I've ever witnessed in Star Trek Deep Space uh, <laughs> or uh, Star Trek period. Because I, I just think about juxtapose that against, you know, when, you know, they start singing um, 
uh, at the end of this one, uh, the best is yet to come, yeah. and how organic that <laughs> seems to be. I wrote in my notes, you know, like, what a delightfully weird show. The fact that they can actually pull a scene like that off, and I'm not cringing, I'm kind of delighting what the characters are doing. I'm just l- looking at how the characters are react- reacting, you know, when you have kind of like that Nog with a giant grin on his face. Uh, same with Kira, you know. Um, whereas, like, I, I was hiding my face in my hands when you had Girardi uh, randomly singing under the influence of the Borg Queen, I think. Like, I was just like, what is going on here? It's funny how, like, you can have a scene in this episode of, like, the whole DS9 crew strutting down the promenade set to like that swinging take on the ds9 theme and it's just so fun and cool and then you can have you know the picard crew walk in like dressed to the nines taking to the stage and singing and it just makes you cringe it's i think a little bit of what iris Stephen bear was talking about when he was saying how unbelievably difficult it is to make these things actually fun and cool yeah, and I, I think part of the genius was they did pare down the number of characters that should be included in it because it could be awkward if you know you're trying to force Worf into mm-hmm. this holodeck, you know. Um, whereas you can understand why Worf would go ahead and compete in a baseball game. Like I get that, you know. Um, the one thing that kind of I, I was kind of rubbing my chin about is why Jake wasn't necessarily in that episode. But again, it might just come down to economy of characters. And if they're struggling to give Julian something substantial to do, like like you know, put a little Ipecac in uh, the the martini. Yeah, like, I I don't even know where say Jake would have fit into this episode. Yeah, and I really like that they work Cassidy Yates into the story because in most of the DS9 kind of ensemble fun episodes, like I guess she is in Take Me Out to the Hall Suite actually though. So I should just correct myself, but. I just like that they were working in like a recurring character like Cassidy versus like Worf is one of our leads. He needs to be there. Well, it was interesting in the summer between season six and seven, you know, after one Terry Farrell departed the series, there were a lot of discussions going on about, you know, who or if anybody would be joining the main cast. I think, you know, Ron Moore was fielding some of those questions in the summer on his old AOL chats. But I think there are a lot of fans thinking like, well, why not just promote, you know, Andy Robinson to the main cast as Quark or not Quark as Garrick? You know, why not, you know, bump? Uh, That'd be a twist. That would be a twist. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> it'd be an interesting recast <laughs> right there. Uh, a lot of root beer talk. Do they swap roles? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Armin Shimmerman's a tailor now. Yep um yeah um and i think there's a lot of speculation that it would be one penny johnson you know jumping over to the main cast and and i'm just being honest that you know you can't have a a star trek cast with one woman in the main cast you know we we had the Mm -hmm. departure of terry frell i think everybody kind of knew that you'd have to have like the addition of another one more cast member and it would be a woman i think that Fans quickly figured out within weeks that, yeah, no matter how much we'd love to see, you know, Garrick appear more often, Andy Robinson's not making it the main cast. So there were a lot of questions whether or not maybe, um, uh, you know, uh, Penny Johnson would be bumped up. I just think it, it, it was too intriguing for the writers to give up on the idea. Like, we've got the Dax symbiont. Like, why not put that to use? Why not introduce some interesting elements about how that character is going to function with people like Benjamin, with Worf? with julian you know like like i i think that was just too enticing to give up there and it makes sense in the long run but 
it is interesting how you know characters like just just how rich of a tapestry that they built in terms of characters here and that that you know cassidy could fit in so easily as she did yeah i mean i really enjoy cassidy on the show and i i've always really enjoyed how this show can make characters who are either recurring or new to the show feel like part of that tapestry so quick and like you know watching this episode today i mean esri is in what 26 episodes of DS9. I mean, I'm not sure she's in every episode of season seven. I'd have to go back and check the tape on that. But when I watch this episode, it doesn't feel like, oh, there's the classic crew and the new character. It feels like instantly when I watch it, oh, Esri's a part of this team. And the show was so good at doing that, not just with like, you know, recasting her, but every recurring character on the show. If there was one character and it was not going to be Casty, and if it was not going to be Garrick, who might you bump up to the main cast out of the uh, remaining cadre of recurring characters? Like, what would be maybe the most organic character? Um, and I, I, I hate to do it, but uh, we don't necessarily have to, you know, include a, a woman in that. You know, just right. to make sure that the, um, the the numbers are are a little bit equitable. It is still kind of disappointing that there are only like any given time there are only two women in the main cast of Deep Space Nine. Yeah, I I guess like. Because I would say, like, Lita, perhaps. But, like, it makes... It doesn't make a lot of sense to have Lita join the main cast, but Rom not. Why would you say Lita? I'm just... Uh, out of my own curiosity, why Lita in the main cast? Well, because that's another that's another recurring female character who's relatively prominent on well, the show. I'm that's saying, the only reason. I'm saying, like, you don't have to necessarily... Yeah, yeah. ...think about that. Just as a character that would fit any character who would fit most organically, aside from Cassidy and Garrick, who would you bump up? into the main cast. I think Nog would be the most interesting one because yeah. he plays such a like prominent role through the Dominion War stuff. So in season seven, like I wouldn't say Nog in like season four, you need to bump him up to the lead, but um I do think in season seven an argument could definitely be made. I think in season seven, I might be wrong. I think we discussed this years ago, but I think Aaron Eisenberg actually appeared in more episodes in season seven than once Sirach Lofton did. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't really surprise me when it comes down to Dominion War stuff. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, the other, the only other two characters I might make an argument for would either be Rom or Martok, in which their presence, it would not feel inorganic to see them a little bit more frequently and interacting with the other main characters as well. No, both of those are also, like, good secondary options as well. Um, if we'd had a little more Dukat, maybe he would have belonged in there too, but yeah. Yeah, uh, but again... <laughs> Like, his arc ended after the end of Waltz, and they kept yeah. kind of wedging him in there, and it just never quite worked the same. And that's that's tough. You know, like, sometimes you just have to kill your darlings, and but you don't want to give up on a a character like that, especially, like, a performance like that, like you're getting from Mark Alemo. Mm-hmm. I mean, DS9 is just a murderer's row of a supporting cast. It's frankly unbelievable. There's not many shows that I can hold up and say, like, these ones are on, like, this show's on the same level as DS9 with a supporting cast. This one was just unbelievable. Yeah, well, like, think that's their farm team, and I'd say that their farm team at, at, at times um, could make an argument. Like, I, I'm just saying, like, uh, the uh, Picard casts that keep uh, rotating, you know, seasons one and two, I, I just... I don't know if they quite stack up in terms of my own investments uh, as well as the uh, the Deep Space Nine farm team does. 
Well, what's always interesting is when you go to the conventions and they have the DS9, you know, group panels. And there are recurring, you know, actors mixed in with the regular leads because at a certain point, like, the line becomes invisible between the two, especially in the eyes of the audience. Yeah. So I, my biggest regret, though, is before Louise Fletcher recently passed away that, like, I, I never got to see her at a convention. And she had been um, scheduled a few times or maybe just once or twice. But I, I think it was kind of clear that she had been dealing with medical issues for a while. So, you know, but uh, again, I, I don't necessarily know that if, uh, if Kai Wynn would have been uh, the best fit as a uh, main cast member uh, going into the final season of Deep Space Nine. <laughs> What would her role have been in this heist? She would have. <laughs> what would her role have been? She would have been um, the cocktail waitress. She would have taken Esri's uh, role, right? That would have been. I I would have loved to have seen like Louise Fletcher play the cocktail waitress role. Or she would have been one of the uh, the dancers on stage. You know, that kind of uh, doing like the finger guns at the last uh, that last dance. Is she like referring to people as my child while doing it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, no, my chips. <laughs> there was a couple other characters I wanted to acknowledge. Um, the um, one that worked for me and one that, eh, the one that I didn't really work for me was uh, uh, Robert Miano as Frankie Eyes. I just like, when I see a lot of these heist stories, the person you're toppling, you really want to kind of, have like a strong dislike for. And I just felt like Frankie Eyes, the fact that I barely remember this character, you know, in between viewings of this episode kind of speaks to, he just doesn't quite hit with the uh, the level of kind of, uh, you know, impact I would like. I guess the only problem is, is like, um, I think Mark Lawrence as uh, Mr. Zemo was excellent, but he's not yep. exactly a contemporary of Jimmy Darren in which they'd go back playing stickball in uh, South Philly, you know, way back in the day. So, <laughs> you know, like, uh, it would have been fun if they tried to play it that way. But um, I'm sure J- Jimmy Darren would have been uh, uh, offended. But, um, like, I know what you're saying. He just, I, I almost wonder if um, Mike Starr as Cheech could have, I don't know, put a gray wig on him or something like that. That, that could have been a little <laughs> bit of fun. He's great. Like, he's so much fun in this episode, and I think he might have worked, but it is sort of like an age thing, and I guess maybe they just didn't... I don't know. I just feel like they didn't find the perfect character actor for the Frankie Eyes, but Mark Lawrence, I'm glad you mentioned, because he's genius in this episode. So much fun. Brings so much (laughs) to just a small little bit of business in the episode, but there's kind of an interesting tie-in with... um, um, our man Bashir and that you know we have Julian in that one kind of evoking James Bond in this episode he orders a vodka mar- a martini but says stirred not shaken yeah and um, Mark Lawrence actually played uh, you know a Bond villain I suppose in two different movies in Diamonds Are Forever the Las Vegas film and also the man with the golden gun I had no idea that's actually pretty cool yeah, if you go in Diamonds Are Forever, it's a bit party, plays a mobster. He's the one that throws Lana Wood's Plenty O'Toole out the window of oh. the hotel when she lands in the pool. That was one of your favorite moments in all of cinematic history, Ken. <laughs> that the rampant misogyny, you know, that's, yeah. I'm kidding, listeners. Well, 1970s Vegas. Yeah, Cam, Cam would not laugh at that. Yeah, he's the one who has the line, like, I didn't know there was a pool down there. Oh, yeah. And then... <laughs> In The Man with the Golden Gun, he has a uh, face-off with Christopher Lee at the very start of the movie in the pre-credit sequence. 
So it is decided. This is all just a Irish Stephen Bear vanity project this episode, right? Yes, 100%. He cast this actor knowing damn well where he was from. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, Cam, I, I, look, I, I think this is a classic Deep Space Nine episode. You're probably not going to find it in like the top 10 lists of Deep Space Nine, but I think for our classic episode reviews, I, I think we've tried to go beyond like the super obvious top 10 episodes and, and just find some that just, you know, even something like Galileo 7. You know, just something that's mm -hmm. just a little bit more out there uh, that people wouldn't necessarily spend kind of an entire hour thinking of. And so uh, I, I've been having fun doing these uh, classic uh, Trek reviews uh, once again. Um, but when we come back next week, you, sir, will be vacationing in sunny L.A. visiting Disneyland for your birthday. So when we come back, we will be reviewing, of course, uh, two episodes of Star Trek Prodigy as well as the last couple episodes of uh, Andor, uh, including the, the season one finale. So lots for us to talk about. I'm, I'm looking forward to it so much. Yeah, uh, I think it's going to be really fun to get back to not just Prodigy, but also catch up with Andor because we are getting close, especially with Andor, to the end of the season. And I am genuinely curious to see how this show wraps up. It's um, it, it, like I, I think it's going to be explosive and exciting. But even if they're just talking about fuel purity, I will really, you know, like salute the cojones on uh, Tony Gilroy for just going it for going for it there. Do you think it's going to end with like a big like cliffhanger hook or does like Tony Gilroy not care about such things and it's going to be more of a downbeat end of season one? I don't think there's going to I don't think he wants to end it on a cliffhanger. I think his full intention and he's made it quite clear like uh, he's one of those filmmakers. If he's in TV, he's making a 12 hour movie and I don't think that would include any sort of cliffhanger. Cool. OK, you can, of course, find us on the Twitter I'm at Cam, V as in Vodka Martini, Stirred Not Shaken, Smith. And you can find me at Reporton, that's R-E-P-O-R-T-O, O as in O'Brien's Strip Search, N. <laughs> okay, so until next time, the arena is closed. The best is yet to come, and babe, won't it be fine? The best is yet to come. Transfer complete.